ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the gun racks, Northern Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. My name is Josiah Upper. Folks call me Joey, and with me we have one Drew Poplin. Poplin. And today we have an excellent show for you in store. But first, before we even get into the intro, I want you guys to consider living life to the fullest. What does that mean for you? Take today and have the opportunity and then seize the opportunity to establish greatness in your lives. And that's going to be done through Zip Fizz, ladies and gentlemen. A, a not SDI, but very much Joey endorsement as I chug it in a medieval times goblet uh, to get us amped for a full day of podcasting. Uh, as we're doing quite a few today, there's only one fizzy overpriced but glorious drink that I rely on to seize greatness. Not an official endorsement by Sonoran Desert Institute or Drew Poplin. I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> You have to take the opportunity to seize greatness for yourself. And mine is going to be eventually a sick endorsement deal separate from SDI for Zip Fizz. Yeah, I was about to go old Dead Poet Society on you. I was about to stand up on my desk. Oh, Captain, my Captain. uh Uh-huh. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Seize the day. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, but for real, we have a really good show for you guys today. Uh, We're doing a list uh, and we haven't done uh, a list in a really long time, so I'm excited to share this with you. Um, perhaps a naked reach for uh, for downloads as they perennially do well with us, but you know what? We're okay with that. We <laughs> we just concept. we did a non sponsorship sponsored reading for Zip Fizz within the first ten seconds of the show. So we nothing that was all made. Well, yeah. Um, you get no credit, and SDI gets no blame for Zip Fizz. I'm okay with that arrangement, actually. Rep my personal brand. Pretty sure if they actually sponsored me and then I did that, I'd you know, be reprimanded and or fired. So Zip Fizz, stay away from me. It's best that our love is from afar. It can never be. It could never be, which sucks because I buy 30 of them a month, minimum. I love them. Well, at least like at least Zip Fizz reciprocates it to some extent to you. May, I'm assuming. I'm assuming you guys so. have been in talks and stuff. Pe- Pepsi is too big for me. Yeah, and I'm like I'm like I, the dog that just keeps crawling back to it. I told you to look back on Royal Crown and see if you could make something happen, but you didn't want to listen to me, and uh, you tried to latch on to the worst version of Coke. Royal Crown, baby. Pepsi uh, is the is the worst version of Coke. Royal Crown. I don't know. The king, baby. I don't know. I'm I'm not a huge fan of Sam's Cola. Ooh, I don't know. We all should be operating off of Food Lion brand sodas anyway. That's fair. I have oh, a very cheap. large thing of root beer that I'm failing to uh, <laughs> schlep off to anyone. Uh, well, you know, if anyone wants Joey's week old 
root beer. Hey, uh, it's unopened. Hit us up. It's hit us up. new. Yeah, maybe later we can get the expiration date on that. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out here right now. Send an email to marketing at sdi.edu. Say I want the root beer. We'll know what it means. You send your shipping info to us. And whether SDI pays for the shipping or not, I will send you that two liter of root beer directly to your home. Yeah, this isn't even coded language. He, he literally is talking about root beer right now. It's, yeah, this is not some sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Root beer is actually um, a bolo with an SDI logo on it. No, we're talking about two liters of root beer straight to your door from my door in an undisclosed location. You really can't beat it. You can't beat it. I'll have to make sure the return address is something ethereal and, and dodgy. No one will know. <laughs> that, I'd I say that, that's fair. You like ship it from like Alaska or something. Like drive two or three hours away and send it from a P.O. box. No, you're just going to drive to my house. Yes. <laughs> send it from there. Two to three hours away. Yes. So... <laughs> send an email to marketing at sti.eu and say i want the root beer first one to do it gets the root beer meanwhile we're going to be diving into the 13 biggest gun fails in recent history according to outdoor life should be really fun actually uh we again we haven't done a list piece in forever um, and uh, they're a lot of fun we're going to do this in the format we've done in the past where drew's kind of reading them off that we'll do a little reaction here with me, and then uh, you guys can react in your brains, and uh, you can feel free to send that as well, uh, or comment on social with, with your hot takes on that. It should be really good. But before we get into that, Drew Poplin is on the clues. Drew's clues. What do we have today? All right. So last week, our answer was the Smith & Wesson Model 10. This week, I'm giving you four clues. Clue number one, this firearm was patented, uh, I can't speak, patented in 1836, five shots, has a revolving cylinder, and a folding trigger. Um, or in other words, the trigger would become visible upon cocking the hammer. What do you think it is? Let us know. Or if you just want the root beer, you can also email us about that. Um, anyway, let's carry on. Let's carry on. Before we top, uh, pop into the 13 biggest gun fails in recent history, according to Outdoor Life, we want to talk to you about an actual endorsement of the gun wreck. Uh, and that is Sonoran Desert Institute, from which we are born and from which we thrive. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online accredited school by the Distance Education Accredited Accrediting Commission, so DEAC. And uh, we teach uh, firearms technology, uh, or we focus on topics of firearms technology and uncrewed slash unmanned technology. Uh, we have a certificate in firearms technology gunsmithing, CFTG, Associate of Science in Firearms Technology, ASFT, and then of course the certificate in unmanned technology, aerial systems, C-U-T-A-S. Uh, all three of them, are just a really, really good time. And uh, if you are interested in the topics of unmanned technology uh, or firearms technology, come visit us at sdi.edu. We'd love to have you become a part of the family. 
Yes, we would. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, yes. sorry, I didn't know if you were going to well within the silence. Yes. Um, okay, let's get into this thing. Uh, I'm going to open this thing with Drew here so I can see it too. All right. And once again, our source for this is OutdoorLife.com. The article is titled 13 of the Biggest Gun Fails in Recent Firearm History. Uh, this was published April 21st, 2016 by Ashley Klebinski. Klebinski? Klebinski. Klebinski. Okay. Um, and, oh, good grief, girl. You posted this at 11.54 p.m., yeah, that was me back in my writing days. Oh. Well, my freelance writing days. I guess that would make sense. So, Ashley, thank you very much for writing this article. And let's get started. So, um, she has an honorable mention for intro guns. You know, sort of like the first guns you may be purchasing in your life. She says, a lot of weird guns have been made throughout the ages. Some were the product of innovative thinking that didn't exactly pan out in execution. Other obscure models were developed to circumvent patent infringement. Many, however, were successful firearms with design flaws that weren't considered prior to production. As we sit here and judge, though, it's important to remember that historical hindsight is always 2020. There are too many quirky guns in existence to limit them all. These are just 13 unlucky guns that might make you ask the question, why the firearm or WTF? And let's get started. Number 13, she has the Whitney Wolverine. According to Wikipedia, the Whitney Wolverine is an advanced, quote, space-aged, unquote, lightweight, aluminum, semi-automatic 22 LR caliber pistol. It was created in 1956, uh, originally designed in 1953, has a 10-round magazine, a barrel of 46 two five inches and a weight of only 23 ounces uh has a blowback action and was in (laughs) it was in production for about a year or two uh is engineered by uh robert hilberg uh remember that name because he will be coming up later oh really yeah honestly seems like a dope guy like just yeah spoiler he makes another appearance on this list i'll say like i appreciate the innovative thinking like at least you're trying something different. The name uh, Whitney actually comes from the factory where they produced these was located near the old Eli Whitney factory site. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And the name Wolverine came from uh, his favorite football team, the Michigan Wolverines. Yeah, thought, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a Red Dawn reference. That's a bummer. Yeah. So... Ashley says about the Whitney Wolverine. In the post-World War II period, there was a race to create the most efficient synthetic gun. Some platforms, like the AR-15, were successful, while others, like the Whitney Wolverine, were less fortunate. This gun was designed by Robert Hilberg uh, in 1956 and manufactured by Whitney Arms. The gun was made from aluminum and weighed only 1.3 pounds. Pretty impressive. But it failed in part due to unsuccessful marketing efforts, and little more than 10,000 were produced over two years. While this futuristic-looking design initially disappeared from the firearm scene, it was later given new life through Olympic arms. 
Yeah. Okay. This is definitely an interesting one. It's difficult to describe. It's got something of the Luger forward grip situation. Uh, that's probably not the best way to say that. It looks uh, like you a know duck how, to me. <laughs> the, the grip of this firearm, the frame of this firearm has a very forward leaning, aggressive look. It looks like a gun that Sean Connery as James Bond would have oh, in an attempt to look as futuristic as possible. Um, relative to other firearms, I don't know why this one wasn't more successful. Um, there may be more to it than these little snippets we had, uh, but when people hear aluminum frame, I think a lot of them go, what? Um, but I'll remind you guys, that's definitely a thing. Um, my two favorite guns in the world, the TriStar T100, well, that I own, uh, the TriStar T100 and the TriStar T120 are both aluminum alloy frames. Um, and I haven't had a single issue with that whatsoever. It's been great. So it's definitely doable. I don't know if their build was a little worse. Um, if it was just unsuccessful marketing efforts, I mean, what a bummer. So um, it was a mixture of like poor marketing, um, which sort of led to financial problems. And I think a big contributor was the fact that uh, Ruger and Colt came out with their new semi-automatic 22s. And uh, they underpriced them by two dollars, which is you know three hundred and seventeen dollars and sixty years ago money. Yeah, it was significant. Um, but so like you know, it, it makes sense. Like I mean, Colt and Ruger both were around for <laughs> for a really long time. Well, yeah, but you know they are both established brands, so it made sense that you know people sort of like, well, I'll kind of go with this as you know, this established weapon over this futuristic gun when it's more expensive. Um, granted, that's not always the case with technology, uh, but sometimes it happens. Moving on. Let's go. Number 12. And I can't remember if we've referenced this on the podcast before. I think this may have been a Drew's Clues. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. Uh, but we're talking about the Dardic Revolver and Trowns. The Dardic Pistol was an American magazine-fed revolver. It was designed by David Dardic in 1949. And what was unique about it, according to Guns.Fandom, it used a proprietary type of ammunition known as the Trown. Basically, it consisted of a 38 caliber bullet-encased in a triangular polycarbonate sleeve. What? Yeah. If you are curious as to what uh, these rounds look like, please look them up. They, it almost reminds me a little bit of like a, of like a, like a shotgun shell almost, but like obviously a lot smaller and it, it's weird. It's really, really weird. Um, Ashley says about it, like the Wolverine, designers were experimenting with new and different concepts in the post-World War II period. While many explored the world of synthetics, David Dardick applied that model of change to how the gun fired. Patented in 1954, Dardick's triangular round or trowned 
what's a projectile encased within a blue, green, or white polymer. This type of ammunition would be paired with an open-topped pistol. Production ceased after less than a decade. The round would resurface decades later, uh, later with the U.S. government project Salvo, but it never met public acceptance. Interesting. I'm not even sure what to start with here. When, thro- uh, oh, go ahead. I say it throws me off that like the trigger area like exceeds further. Yeah, the trigger guard it goes past the frame of the firearm. Imagine that for one thing. When I was in college, when I was in a college play, uh, we had someone was supposed to pull out a gun towards the end of the show. And the gun that they had was this comical, like spare parts from around the shop thing that someone had screwed together. And it like, it didn't even look like a gun's ugly step cousin. Like only, only someone sitting one or 200 feet away would mistake it for a prop gun of any way, shape or form. Um, and it looks exactly like this firearm does. Like, it, it's difficult to conceptualize an uglier firearm than this. A magazine-fed revolver uh, is kind of an interesting concept. But uh, looking at this one, it doesn't look like it added all that much capacity. But that's just me eyeballing it. I could be wrong about that. Um, I mean, it was what? It, like, it would fire 10 rounds in a magazine? I have no idea. Oh, um, yeah, I believe that's what I said. It um, okay. had a magazine capacity of... Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so they actually have three different feed systems. They have um, the 1100, which is a 11 round internal magazine. Interesting. They have the 1500, which is a 15 round internal magazine, and a t- 2000 with a 20 round internal dual fed magazine. Okay. Well, that's a little more interesting. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, then then that kind of that part of my argument disintegrates, but. It's a weird-looking gun, dude. I don't know if I could bring myself to own one of these. It's like if someone uh, heard about the concept of the Rhino and then was told to recreate that gun just from an audible description. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolute bedlam. Yeah, to me, I get like the vibe of those thermometers that like people put up to your head just yeah. with a barrel attached to it. Yes. Uh, yeah, but um, anyway, let's move on. And we have another wild one for you. Uh, another very experimental one. It's the gyrojet. Uh, oh, yes. Or Eurojet, if you're Greek. <laughs> um, <laughs> this doesn't necessarily refer to one particular firearm. Ashley refers to the pistol. Uh, version of it but there was a couple different versions um much like colt back in the day um he had the revolving rifle and the revolver pistol basically 
uh, is named for the method of gyroscopically stabilizing its projectiles. Uh, rather than bullets, it essentially fired small rockets called microjets. Uh, and, you know, it had less recoil and it didn't need a heavy barrel or chamber like to, because, you know, when you have all the gas building up, um, you know, typically with a firearm, you have the combustion gases, like that's a lot of you know, pressure. Um, these apparently um, allowed for the barrels to be lighter. Um, very, very odd. Um, very, very odd. It was a, it's effective firing range was about 55 yards. Uh, that fits. Yeah, it had a six round internal box magazine uh, and iron sights. Ashley says about it, well, the gyro jet was the closest thing to a successful rocket pistol. That goal wasn't necessarily a high mountain to climb. Developed in the 1960s by Robert Mainhart and Art but Bell, Beal, Art Beal with the NBA Associates, this firearms. Oh, sorry. Uh, this firearm fired microjets, tiny rockets. The lightweight build of the gun and its ammunition were an interesting combination that didn't fully work. The neat idea was that the microjets burned rocket propellant, meaning the pressure was inside the projectile, not the gun. Mm, interesting. The downside, terrible muzzle velocity. Um, she doesn't give a figure, but... The muzzle velocity upon like leaving was pretty low, but it increased to around 1,250 feet per second. Really? Uh, at 30 feet. That's very interesting. So like the first 10 yards, it wasn't doing much, but then after that, um, so yeah, very, very odd. She goes on. There were other issues with the gyrojet and execution, and this is one of those guns that failed to become popular on the market. That said, it has become a curiosa item among collectors. I can't believe that they're still out there and gettable. Um, I kind of want one. I mean, it's an interesting looking gun, which they certainly don't cover. If the Dardic Revolver and Trowns is the ugliest gun I've ever seen. Gyrojet might be number two. Um, massive, you know, the M16 carry handle up top. Uh, same system, but, I mean, that appears to be fully four or five inches tall. Massive guy. And massive. I, can't tell, I can't tell if it's just the picture, but the butt of the gun looks massive as well. It does. Like it, it does. The stock is oversized. Um, yeah, it's an interesting gun. All of that, of course, is irrelevant if it shot a really cool round. Um, and it kind of does. I'd be interested to know if the gyrojet, or sorry, the mini rocket, had a different muzzle velocity at 30 feet, whether it was fired from the rifle version or the handgun version. Normally, the answer is yes, but this isn't a standard round. So I'd be very interested to see what that those ballistics look like um, and, and what that velocity would be at that range. But yeah, interesting gun for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, let's check out this next one. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, this next this one's one, kind of spicy. Yeah, I was I was kind of shocked to see this name on here. The Winchester model 1893 shotgun. Bet you didn't think you hear Winchester on here, did you? Um, so this is a pump action shotgun. Um, it was produced from 1893 to 1897, so only a four-year run. It had a barrel length of 20 to 32 inches, and it had a five-round tube magazine. What Ashley says about it, which, you know, I'm intrigued to see what she says. This Winchester model 1893 was actually a good gun. Well, there you go. Yep. <laughs> the end. <laughs> but it was still one of the earliest production recalls in American history. It was the Winchester's first successful slide action shotgun, but it was invented at the wrong moment in history. The shotgun was made for black powder during the time of transition to smokeless. Winchester was worried that people would inadvertently put smokeless shells into the gun and be, and in turn be injured. So they recalled the firearm and replaced it with their slide action smokeless shotgun, the model 1897. There you go. So it was about five years too early is what it sounds like. Yeah. Actually props to Winchester for being like, uh, yeah, doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, also maybe trying to avoid lawsuits, but still doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Either or, I'm glad they did it because, uh, yeah, I can totally see where that would be an oh, issue. For sure. Yeah, so that's interesting that like it wasn't necessarily a gun fail. It was just more like it was like a transitionary period, and that's why it ended up on the list. Uh, yeah. This next one caught me off guard as well. Number nine. Yeah, this one I straight up do not agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has the M60 machine gun. It fires a 7.62 millimeter rounds. It's a rate of fire of about 550 to 650 rounds per minute. Um, it's still in service today. Uh, it was designed in the 1950s. Ashley says, while the M60 machine gun was one of the most widely used machine guns in American history and well-liked by many, this in is an example of a good gun with some features that make you go, huh? The M60 or PIG was manufactured starting in 1957 in 7.62 by 51 millimeter NATO. While it was the first American machine gun to feature a quick change barrel, changing the barrel was no easy task. The barrel, gas cylinder, and bipod were all attached. Also, there was no carry handle to facilitate the barrel changes. The lack of handle forced the army to issue asbestos gloves. Another downside to the gun was that it frequently malfunctioned in the Vietnam climate. It was not until the M60E4 came out more than 30 years later that they finally worked the kinks out. But it already been replaced by most branches. Yeah, I, I understand. I hear her. I don't think it's the ninth biggest gun fell in recent history yeah that's to say that's a goof is legitimate to say it's part of the 13 of the biggest gun fails in recent firearms history is a total joke um you can't by her own admission this is a good firearm and no the lack of handle force to the army to issue asbestos gloves is just wrong categorically incorrect um 
no one forced the army to issue asbestos anything. Um, come on now. Uh, insulated gloves don't have to be done with asbestos. Um, I'm about 99.9% .9 confident that uh, asbestos gloves weren't the only type of gloves on the market uh, in the Vietnam era. Um, that, that's just a real, like, you can't blame the gun for the type of gloves that the army chose to use to maintain it. Um, that's, mm. it's just a bad take. It's a really bad take. I have a feeling that this was put in here to keep it spicy rather than out of a conviction that it's actually good. I would actually agree with that. Moving on, uh, to number eight, we have the liberator pistol slash shotgun concept. Um, most of y'all are familiar with the liberator the liberator idea, and this is me quoting Ashley, the liberator idea to arm rebels with firearms to rise up against their tyrant governments may have been a good one, but it was never fully executed. During World War II, the single-shot FP-45 pistols were made to be dropped into enemy territory. However, we don't know any documentation that this was, or we don't know of any documentation, excuse me, that this was implemented. The idea was revived by Robert Hilberg, my man. After the 1959 firearm confiscation in Cuba, the Liberator shotgun was devised to be dropped into Cuba during the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was a four-barrel shotgun that cost less than $20 to produce. While the Mark I came out too late for Bay of Pigs invasion, Winchester did agree to test it in 1964 for Vietnam. Unfortunately, the Liberator never saw productive use, but it's still a pretty bad leap looking gun um i again am a little confused why this is on the list i mean there's plenty of firearms that get designed that never really see much widespread use yeah I, that's not a gun fail it just isn't the objective was to make a working firearm with a very little amount of money and they did mm -hmm. like the end Although I, I'll, I'll add a, a PS to the, the end. This shotgun looks really freaking cool. It, it, okay, like <laughs> it's it a very cool looking gun. Um, here's another thing worth noting. Um, Bay of Pigs Invasion uh, is... When was the Bay of Pigs Invasion? I know it's very early 60s, but when exactly? I want to say 61. I know it's a Kennedy thing. You're correct, April 17th, 1961. Let me tweak my little math I just did. Okay, so 1961, $100 in 1961 is just under a grand today. So we're looking at about a 10 to one multiplier here. I think it's 9.77. Um, less than $20 to produce actually is not that impressive um when you put it in context like that mm -hmm. um, the, brandon she didn't say whether or not this like when she said twenty dollars she didn't say whether that was today's value or at the time if it only cost true dollars uh, that's but, true but if like i think your point still stands though like that it's not really an impressive feat yeah if, if it was too like my h&r partner pump shotgun which is a knockoff of a Remington 870, but a very good knockoff of a Remington 870 cost me 125 bucks retail new. Um, so if, in, if it's in that $200 range, give me something that's, uh, you know, 
sitting if you're going to have a uh, send a bunch of guns to a hostile, you know, environment. Throw a bunch of Maverick 88s down there. <laughs> It'll be great. Yeah, let's let's continue on yeah. with number seven, the Villar Perosa. Just looking at it, I would I, not be able to identify this as a firearm. Not at if, all. Yeah, it I, looks like a piece of plumbing. I was going to say, like, it looks like a piece of, like, maybe a microscope or something. But I, yeah, I would have never guessed this was a firearm. Anyway, Ashley says the Villar Perosa has been accurately called, quote, impractical, unquote, all over the internet. That's fair. Yes. It's a weird looking gun that was used and adapted in many different ways because of its inability to be used for one primary role. Invented by Ravelli in Italy, 1914, it was used by the military in 1915. It was essentially a pair of submachine guns mounted side by side with a rate of fire of 12,000 to 15, I mean, 1,200 to 1,500 RPM. It was intended for many things, but failed. An aircraft weapon, ground machine gun, an infantry rifle. Oh, Oh my gosh. It was later modified to improve its efficacy. It was not until Italian Alpine troopers used it that it found some success. Still not a well-known firearm. And not many models have survived since many were broken down to be made into the model 1918 submachine guns. That is, if I were told this as a firearm and looked at it, I would assume it's some sort of plain uh firearm yeah uh yeah or even some sort of anti-aircraft gun although if it's shooting submachine gun rounds uh good luck hitting the sky but that yeah big uh big bofers vibes from this guy yeah i could definitely see it being mounted on an aircraft although you know i don't know like this thing looks like it weighs like maybe a couple tons uh i know it doesn't obviously yeah i can't imagine it being an infantry rifle like uh, or like mounted to like a sop with camel yeah well uh, i mean if it's if it's shooting uh if it's supposed to be a submachine gun that implies a pistol cal- caliber cartridge yeah um i'm gonna i'm gonna look that up nine millimeter glissanti Okay. okay okay that's that's more reasonable um th- well that th- it's essentially nine by 19 parabellum which means it's the to use it as a rifle you have an effective range of maybe 100 yards if you're amazing with it sure uh, or 50 yards if you're a normal dude so it definitely doesn't make sense for an aircraft weapon though yeah or a rifle i mean you don't have any range to this thing um Ground machine gun kind of interesting if you had a teeny weeny emplacement in like a a tight space. Just a very odd, like I understand the reasoning behind it. Take the effectiveness of the machine guns that are dominating the world and tighten it all up, right? But I mean, if you're going to do it, why not do it with a light rifle cartridge or something? Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. But a well-deserved spot on this list. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that one. 
moving on, and I referenced this earlier, actually, uh, the Colt revolving rifle. In 1836, Samuel Colt took out his first revolving patent in America. Many people remember the Colt Patterson and its shortcomings, and the Colt's revolving rifle endured similar scrutiny. His model 1855 was the most widely produced rifle. In comparison to the revolvers, the problem with the rifles was that if the gun chain fired, your face was dangerously close to the cylinder. <laughs> okay, I can F see. in the chat, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Additionally, the rifle would spray lead into the wrists of the users. Oh, gosh. Uh, which was not uh, which was not a problem for the revolver since both hands were behind the cylinder. Could Ashley be more white, honestly? She oh, cried about a, a little explosion in your face, a little got lead a little inside lead your body. Listen, we're talking like the mid-1800s. You're just happy if you live to the age of 32. Yeah. I didn't get bit by a rattlesnake today. That's cool. <laughs> I don't have cholera. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, my, my, the town doctor doesn't believe in uh, vampires, which is pretty sweet, and also does not believe in treating wounds based on the, the humors. Yes, but he does believe in bloodletting. He does, but in fairness... I mean, that's just science, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you you got to get over your prejudice. Um <laughs> The uh, I will say for all the guns we've been dunking on, this Colt revolving rifle is a beautiful piece oh, of work. Absolutely, it's easily the prettiest thing we've got here. I know, I think Rossi makes a revolver right now. Uh, revolving rifle, sorry, I'm gonna look that up as well. Um, which is almost as pretty. That's actually on my I, I see that every once in a while, and I think that i gotta make that happen sometime really cool stuff yeah this is one that you definitely like would want mounted on a fireplace yeah yeah the the circuit judge i think is what i was thinking of which actually is not as pretty a firearm as i thought it was um still very fun concept uh cranking that hammer back for each shot instead of working a bolt i mean yeah that's cool stuff yeah, and well, it's unfortunate that you know Samuel Colt never went on to make anything else. Yeah. <laughs> he did all right. Yeah. Anyway, number five, uh, and we're gonna stay in the direction of uh, cylinder. Uh, we have the Cochrane Turret gun. This one's incredible. Yeah. Oh wow. I thought the uh, image just was cut off at the top and i'm nope. starting to realize nope nope it is as flat as a pizza pie up there ashley says the concrete turn guns were produced with a horizontally seated cylinder in 1836 samuel colt took out one of his first revolving patents in the united states c number seven as a result no one in america could provide a revolver in that configuration Around the same time, John Webster Cochran set out to develop a turret revolver, and the chambers were bored into the horizontal disc. While a unique idea, the Cochran guns were pr actually pretty dangerous. The exposed chambers could spell disaster for the shooter and anyone around that person if the firearm malfunctioned or chain fired. 
I'm trying to think of how to describe this, especially in terms of comparing it to you know, the typical revolver you see nowadays. Yeah, basically just think of like a flat disc with little bores on the side of it. It looks like something a steampunk animator would create and be like, I created a whole new concept of firearm. Yeah, in the in the uh can we talk about the trigger real quick? Yeah. That I'm... trigger wants you to die. Yeah. It it wants it wants you to have a catastrophic failure. I'm just gonna move on because this next firearm is very closely related, in my opinion. It we is ha- we have the porter turret. Uh the turret guns of the 19th century had their issues, like the Cochrane, the TP Porter's design had similar problems. The nine or in the 1850s, the gun had exposed chambers on a vertically seated cylinder. So basically, take the Cochrane gun and uh, just kind of uh, flip it uh, about 45 degrees or about 90 degrees. My bad. I don't know my degrees. The gun had exposed chambers on a vertically seated cylinder. Other Porter designs had a canister ball magazine that set on the top of the breach obstructing sight line down the barrel <laughs> the porter guns that ended up being relatively popular worked out these kinks before production yeah see commentary on point five <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if i can reinvent the wheel on this one but hey i will say that the turret is horizontally order oriented excuse me in the handgun in the rifle, it's vertically oriented. Um, and it somehow is worse. I just, some of these guns before, I'm like, you're goofy, but I would totally own one. Uh, you could not pay me money to have one of these in my house. Yeah. So here's the thing I actually disagree with you. I think this one is at least cooler looking than the other one. And it doesn't have a trigger that wants to murder you. It's true. This one has a trigger guard. Yeah, like it has a guard. And I can actually tell which is the actual trigger. The other one, it was sort of like, I think. Yeah, there are literally two things that could be triggers on that gun. Mm -hmm. I think you described it best when you're talking about the Cochrane, and it applies to this one. Very steampunky. Very steampunky. And you know the, the classic video? And a lot of these are politically charged, which is not really what I'm I'm trying to highlight here. Um, or someone will take a photo and uh, be like, look, this gun doesn't do anything by itself. I don't trust these guns to do nothing <laughs> by themselves. Uh, it's the only time I've seen a firearm and I'm like, I don't trust you. <laughs> I will not trust you in my home. This thing has some evil intentions, that's for sure. <laughs> It's um, not good. And the fact that it obscures uh, the sight line down the barrel, too. Yeah, I know. They have to do like a, almost a windage adjustment and then look at the front sight post. It looks like a shotgun bead. I don't have any idea how you're supposed to align them. The whole thing, man, is so bad. It's like they created this specifically for John Rambo in mind, knowing yeah. that he's not going to be worrying about you know looking down the barrel. No, he has work to do. Yes. Uh, but even John Rambo, I think, would rather stick with his bow and arrow. Yes. I didn't um, see that third movie. I heard it was bad, 
but I've seen all the other ones. It was, Last Blood. Was that the one that came out like three, four years ago or something? Yes. I watched that. Was it bad? Oh, it was awful. Yeah. Like there well, was the, there was the fourth Rambo parts. movie was excellent. And I was like, you can't double down on that. I mean, fourth Rambo movie is also maybe the goriest film I've ever seen. But um, as far as rehashing old, you know, movie series, the fourth one does a great job. But yeah, brutal movie. Also an hour and 15 minutes long, if I remember correctly, which I thought yeah. was kind of funny. Yeah. This one was also really short, but like the the last little bit at the end was I'll say that was pretty that was pretty cool. Uh they yeah. had so he would like he basically made like like underground tunnels on his barn and like was doing some Viet Cong stuff, just running through the shadows and whatever. You know, it's it's Rambo, so it's like one V. Yeah, my man's got a plan for this. Yeah. Um, it's 1v like 38 yeah uh, but they had the song uh, 5 to 1 or is it 1 to 5 I don't remember. Um, by the Doors playing and I was a big Doors fan at the time so it, I, was, I got hyped for that but uh, anyway Rambo movies aside number 3 maybe a shocker I, I had never heard of this so this should be interesting we have the M1 Grand Correction, the Japanese M1 Grand. Japanese M1 Grand. How has this not made its way into the Call of Duty ecosystem? Um, it Well, do we want to get into another diatribe about EA? <laughs> not today, but soon. But soon. So Ashley says, historically, wars fuel creativity for new weapons. But sometimes they can also stunt research that's in the works. For Japan, the onset of World War II stifled their semi-automatic technology development. They tried to make a comeback in 1945, but at that point, it was too late. By the end of the war, Japan produced a copy of the United States M1 Garand. Some of the differences included a Japanese caliber, a 10-round internal magazine fed by a five-round stripper clip, and a Ariska-style sling swivel. Only 100 are believed to have been made. Uh, so if you get your hands on it, and it's a collector's item, I would imagine. Yes. While a copy of the greatest battle implement ever devised, the Japanese M1 Grand had faulty machining and represented an unsuccessful last-ditch effort at the conclusion of World War II. It was an invention of desperation. It's a really interesting thing. Um, I think if they're fed off of five round stripper clips, I would suspect that they share a cartridge with the Arisaka. Um, I don't know that for sure, though. So I'm about 99% positive the Arisaka uh, was fed by five round stripper clips uh, as opposed to 10 or uh, I think did the Mosin have stripper clips. I, I'm sure it did. Um, don't mind me over here, but one of the big issues with Japan's firearms manufacturing is uh, Japan's firearms manufacturing. <laughs> uh, their, their build quality is historically not the best uh, in this time period. Uh, and 
even I've had the opportunity to to fool around with the Arasaka a little bit. Even that was not the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Very interesting concept, though. You see something that works and you just try to make it happen for you. There's, I mean, it's like the Springfield 1903 with the, the car 98. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting, interesting and kind of brazen concept, which actually leads us pretty well into the next one. I was going to say that's like a perfect transition. Uh, number two, and this is probably one that a lot of you were expecting on this list. The Japanese Type 94 Nambu pistol. This gun has been called many names, usually starting with, quote, the worst military pistol, unquote, and ending with some variation of ever. The Japanese government wanted a cheap pistol fast, and, well, you get what you pay for. Manufactured in 1935 by Kajiro Nambu, this gun had some structural similarities to the Type 14. The main issue that everyone talks about, however, is the exposed trigger bar on the left side of the frame. Imagine being left-handed and using proper handgun handling with your trigger finger along the frame just when you think you're following safety procedures. Bam! The depression of the exposed bar would fire the gun and you had discovered a secret trigger. I did not know about that. Really? Yeah. But yeah. I knew about the gun. I didn't know about the trigger bar. Yeah, there's like a secret button, essentially, like that for whatever reason, it fires. It, it's wild. It, this is another one where we've kind of talked about sort of the general concepts with you know the issues with Japanese manufacturing at the time um, in terms of their firearms. Let's see, it fired a, oh yeah, it was interesting. It fired a eight by 22 millimeter Nambu. Yeah. um, Recoil operated, six round detachable magazine. um, And it was in service until the end of World War II in 1945. Let's not waste any time though. I know you're intrigued by what's number one. Yes, I've actually got some info for us on number one. Number one is the Shosha machine gun. The Shosha has been called the worst gun in history. Named after Colonel Louis Shosha, it was the machine gun used by France during World War I. This gun was used in mass and hundreds of thousands were produced. was one of the earlier light machine guns, the fatal flaw proved to be its magazine. The Half Moon magazine was no match for the muddy trenches of war, and the open mag below the firearm would fill with mud in the trenches and no longer function. Um, I definitely have to admit the magazine shape is very, very odd to see. The, it the half is. Moon. The open magazine is, is interesting. First of all, I just realized it's pronounced Shosha and not Shoshat, which is what I've been calling it for decades. Dude, I had to look it up. Don't. don't yeah, I had that. to look it up while you were talking to make sure you were right, and you totally were. Um, so, uh, SDI has uh, Dean Stern, who was one of our writers a little bit ago, wrote a lengthy piece on the show show. Um, cool. I'm going to power through this thing, I think. I, I think we can get out of this in about five minutes. So, I'm going to do it. Cool. Okay. This is from Dean Stern. 
uh, growing up in the 90s, reliable, wow, reliable sources of firearm information were scarce. Guns and ammo, American rifle, and tales of the gun on the History Channel are about all I can recall. Diversity of opinion was rare, <clears throat> and one thing they seemingly all agreed on was that the 1950 Shosha was the worst firearm ever fielded by France, the United States, or anyone. It's always the go-to example of failure. The internet has allowed for a bit more heterogeneity, but a quick web search on the Fusil Militaire Model 1915 CSRG will still find a near consensus that it was trash. Was it so horrible it functioned only to get French and Americans killed, or were Straubeck's manageable and within the proper context could even be called a revolution of firepower and mass, mass manufacturing? Most information on this article has been derived from Honor Bound by Yves de Masson, Gerard, and Boutefel, or Buffetel. Uh, in Belgium and France, the French infantry entered the First World War without a lightweight select fire weapon. The army quickly realized they needed a man-portable platform that could deliver automatic firepower, particularly on offense. There were options out there, such as the Madsen, Hotchkiss 1909, Binet, Mercier, machine gun, and the Lewis gun. But these were heavy and required costly, complex machining. Like all the major powers, the French needed a lot of guns, but particularly light automatic ones for their outdated tactic of mass infantry offensive. The technique was heavily reliant on Elan, the aforementioned mass infantry offensive, and was thought to require significant numbers of weapons that could be utilized for the concept of walking fire, laying down suppressive fire more or less from the hit on enemy positions while marching through no man's land. A solution was seemingly available in the small batch of Chauchon-Sauterre machine rifles utilized by the other French service branches. These guns were the output of 10-year development project by Colonel Louis Chauchon. Um, 100 were made just before the war, the majority of which mounted to aircraft. The French infantry then adopted them in 1915 as the Fusil Mitrailleur Model 1915 CSRG. The CSRG design was unusual, only 20 pounds. It utilized long recoil action. Related to the Remington Model 8 and the operation gave it a slow cyclic rate of 250 RPM. The eight millimeter LaBelle cartridge had a severe double taper that necessitated a half moon detachable magazine even with a paltry 20 rounds. This machine also had extensive open cuts on the side to allow the user or assistant gunner to assess the remaining ammunition. Though effective within the relatively sterile confines of an aircraft, the French infantry quickly recognized the limitations of the 1915 CSRG in the hell of the trenches. For one, despite the low RPM, the barrel of barrel sleeves composite design uh, allowed it to heat and expand differentially under sustained fire and thus fully bind the action. Uh, without a forward assist or cocking handle directly attached to the bolt, there was nothing to do but wait for it to cool, beat it on a tree, or pour any convenient liquids on it. Worse, the machine uh, magazine's massive open cuts allowed ingress of mud and debris that caused the majority of stoppages. Lastly, despite innovations like a pistol grip, its ergonomics were admittedly terrible, and it required the shooter to fire from a severe angle to avoid a jarring beat down to the user's face. That said, it worked. It had many modern features many years before the int uh, introduction of the M1918 BAR. 
He was lightweight and perhaps most impressively, the manufacturer was simple. It utilized pre-made rifle barrels, aluminum casting sheet, metal tubular receiver, and many in italics screws. According to Honorbound, this thing was also cheap at only around two grand in today's dollars. If we use the silver dollar as our standard, other LMGs in the air like the Lewis gun cost up to $23,500. And even the simpler BAR cost the equivalent of around 8350 when it debuted in 1918. What's more, the companies that produced the CSRG Gladiator and Sidearm were not involved in the war effort at the time, so its manufacture required no loss of industrial output. That is big. Uh, when the American Expeditionary Force joined the fray in 1917 without significant numbers of automatic weapons they wanted in. Indeed, a number of Shosha were adapted to 30 aught 6 as the 1918 CSRG. Admittedly, these guns may well have been the least effective weapon of all time, even according to the noted French weapon enthusiast Ian McCullum at Forgotten Weapons. Many articles online attribute this attribute to this to the more powerful American M1906 cartridge. But if you look at the loadings of the era, 30-06 and 8mm Labelle are relatively comparable in terms of energy and expenditure at about 25 to 2700 foot-pounds and 50,000 PSI. Further, it was almost simultaneously adapted with almost no other changes to the higher power 7.65 Mauser without issue by the Belgians. This was utilized Belgian service until the mid thirties, no less. The strength of the operating system seems not to be the issue. Instead, the caliber conversion process itself was the problem. The chamber was re-aimed, re-armed. There's a typo there. So poorly, the tolerances were so rough that almost all of the few examples that passed inspection were used only for training. They jammed endlessly and the magazines were as fragile as could be. It is here on the range where the impression of its extreme unreliability may have made it to the American consciousness. Despite American mythology to the contrary, the French army knew what they were doing. And if the 1915, uh, 1915s were worthless, they would never have made 240,000 of them when better options were out there. What's more, as you can see in any modern videos, even the 100-year-old examples function quite reliably if maintained. Further, during and after World War I, it was used by at least 20 countries in a variety of calibers. To me, its service history all but proves it. The massive advantage of very cheap sustained firepower carried by one man overwhelmed the design's drawbacks. The CSRG 1915 worked, if taken care of, was many times simpler and cheaper than any alternative was available, and finally, uh, many used it and deployed it through 1940 in some cases. In a world with guns like the execrable Breda 30 and the Hulking M1919A6 in service even 25 years later, to call it the very worst LMG is an example of a conflation of the 1915 and 1918 CSRG, anti-French military bias and a misunderstanding of the proper context. Um, I'm not sure that was five minutes. <laughs> Uh, but very interesting stuff. Uh, I cannot say that I agree with them, though. I'm not sure that logic holds up. Uh, interesting thought piece of interesting uh, op op ed. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Like, I think it's. I mean, it's worth to at least get a second opinion on it. Yeah, for sure. And here's here's my main beef with this. If you have side cuts or an external magazine of any way, shape, or form. 
uh, where mud can get into the gun through normal operations, you have made a bad gun. The end. Um, there's no getting around that. It's that's it. Um, there's actually a video with Grantham where he runs a bunch of firearms through uh, some horrific mud tests. And the only way he's able to break a few of the firearms, and I say break, you know, jam, you know, gum them up, jam them, uh, is to shove uh, mud directly into the action, which is essentially what you're doing by letting mud get into a magazine. Uh, to say that if the CSRG 15 uh, was functional if taken care of, um, that is a, that feels like a very on paper statement when when compared to the brutal realities of a mud caked France um, you to you know to blame and he's not really explicit it's more of an implicit blame of soldiers for not taking care of the Shosha um, and saying it didn't work because that happened I think that's a joke that's just not reasonable um, if, if you are equipped to immediately break the thing in the environment, which it is uh, not acceptable, unacceptable. Um, they're also the, uh, if the French army knew that they were, what they were doing, uh, they never would have made 240,000 of them is just not an argument that works. People and governments do stupid things all the time. Uh, so yeah. that's not an argument that works whatsoever for anything. Um, anyway, that's the show show. A lot of people have big feelings on it. I think it's it was unacceptably poor. I don't know if I put it as number one because I would place, I'd probably place these two turret firearms in that spot. Uh huh. Um, but I, I do think it belongs on this list. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about this list, Drew, now that we've worked our way through it? I think there's definitely plenty I agree with. And I know why some of these showed up, um, especially from, I guess, like a writer, SEO, marketer perspective. Like, yeah, yeah you want to get some of these yeah yeah for sure um i there's a couple in here i really can't agree with but um regardless i'm grateful for the content anyway oh totally thank you very much ashley for putting this together um the m60 i think stands as the worst take among all of these um but i think there were quite a few that are valid and I learned about the Japanese M1 Grand and the VR Parosa mm -hmm. today. And that's cool. Uh, there's not a lot of firearms I've never heard of. So uh, love that. Love to see that. Uh, thank you, Ashley Labinsky, um, or whatever the heck is Drew's calling you these days. Uh, but yeah, it was a good time. I like this one. It was great to be able to have a list that uh, is largely reactionary. Yeah, uh, that's always fun and easy for us. And thank you, even though I disagree with you, Dean. Uh, Dean's a great guy, and uh, he wrote a heck of a piece there. Um, yeah, I told him, by the way, with that piece that he could write about three hundred words. <laughs> that that was not three hundred words. I don't know how long that was, but pretty big. So, 
it's impressive stuff with my boy. So Dean, we miss you, buddy. You're always welcome to come back. And uh, yeah, it was a good time. Uh, for now, we have one more thing. Well, two more things with you guys mm-hmm. uh, to share today. Let's yeah, do some tales from the range. Tales from the range. Uh, this tales is... from the range. <laughs> You're gonna make that stick, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, I'm still partial to the tales, tales, tales from the rain. That's that's the beauty of the wedding march. Uh, any other tune that you stick to it would make more sense. Yeah, you definitely zigged when I thought you would zag. Yeah, so. <laughs> the New England Patriots of tales from the range uh, tune mixes. Oh, don't get me started. Um, so this comes from citydata.com and um. It's a user named Lifelong Imogal, or I can't, I'm, I'm assuming it's M-O-Gal, not Lifelong Mogul. Um, Ooh. So Long, we're going, a Lifelong Missouri gal, maybe. Ah, oh man, I was assuming it, like, that makes a lot more sense. I was, in my head, I was thinking, like, Manchester Orchestra. Great band, <laughs> by the way. Check them out. And she uses some interesting terms. And I don't know if they're like acceptable. So I, but I understood what she was going for. So I'm going to change the words. Uh, so it's not a direct reading, but she says, almost witnessed a Darwin moment, watched a customer buy a new handgun at a gun shop in SLC. I'm assuming that's uh, St. Louis area, if it's Missouri. Oh, yeah. Good call. Good call. And then take it to uh, onto the gun shop's range to put some rounds downrange. Uh, she clarifies that this was through a glassed viewing area. After two, three shots, he points the muzzle up and brings the gun closer to his face to inspect it. Oh, no. Then he proceeded to put the muzzle up his nose so he could smell the gunpowder. With his finger still on the trigger, no less. Jeez. I've been to St. Louis before. It's wild. It's an interesting place. It's regularly ranked as the most dangerous city in the United States. Oh, uh, grief. Yeah, it occasionally fights Baltimore for the honor. But uh, back in the day when I used to report on uh, crime all the time, uh, St. Louis was the scariest place to be perennially. So I stayed uh, in a red roof in there once. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, that you're get... alive is is impressive. <laughs> With all your all your limbs still. Well, I can't say that I didn't leave without some scars. Yeah, who do you think you are? <laughs> your jar of hearts. <laughs> Remember that song? Yeah, you're gonna I... catch a cold from the ice inside your soul. Who did that artist think she was? I don't know, but uh, my such fiance... a whiny song. My fiance literally referenced that like last week we were so hanging cool. out and she was like, yeah, I was super into that song back in the day. Man, I had a girlfriend break up with me right around the time it got popular. And we did like, this was in high school. So we did like a, a choral or, you know, music talent show thing. And she sang that. And I was like, dude, you broke up with me. <laughs> where do you get off listen 
she just want she wanted to end the relationship, but she also wanted the satisfaction of being able to like be the victim. The best of, of the both victim. narratives, my dude. Yeah. So years from now, she's gonna listen to this and be like, Joey, what in the world? You coming after me a you know a decade later. Yeah, sure. But she sang Jar of Hearts. She so, sang Jar uh, of Hearts in front of like a hundred people. And I did have a bunch of people obligatorily afterwards saying, You all right, buddy? Was that was that hard for you? Which of course makes everything about 40 times worse than it is because you, you I was a junior in high school and I wanted to sink into the couch. Mm-hmm. Um rough stuff, jar of hearts. Yeah, rough stuff with the story too. Like I uh, just read when I was looking for when I read it the first time, like my skin started crawling. You know how like you get that feeling where your body just kind of contracts, like when you're seeing something anxiety-inducing or kind of kind of cringeworthy. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be scared in in that if someone is that unaware of what's going on. I would be scared even to stop them because I don't know what they do with that firearm once I tell them to stop. Right. Like not malevolently, but like if they're that incapable of behaving like a normal human being, what are you going to do? <laughs> like that's scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So scary edition of tales from the range this time. Um, maybe next week's will be a little bit more lighthearted. Yes, I doubt it though. Yeah, be something spoopy. You know what is lighthearted and feels you with joy and is not spoopy at all? Is it Sonoran Desert Institute? Yes, it is. Sonoran Desert Institute's an online school focuses in farms technology and unmanned slash uncrewed technology. Um, If you want to learn more about it, you're welcome to come uh, hop on to. A, uh, a call with our admissions team. They're good folks there. Um, we, we have so such a team now that I'm not sure I know all of them, but I used to. And uh, fabulous folks over there. Uh, if you, I'll give, Simona's been on this podcast a couple of times. She's in the admissions team. And uh, tell them that you want to talk to Simona and no one else. Make a really big deal out of it. I'm sure she'll appreciate all the all the new traffic that uh, that we get so (laughs) no but seriously they would love to talk with you guys um they're they're great folks over there and if you want to just hear about it from graduates uh if you go to sdi.edu click on news and then then on the right you'll see categories for our blog hop on to graduate features and you'll see uh testimonies from our uh graduates here at sdi uh, their experiences, where they came from, where they are. And it's, I mean, honestly, it's probably the best way to learn anything uh, from SDI, uh, honestly, from any place you're looking to invest uh, your your energy into learning more about you know, actual, uh, if it's a product, actual customers, if it's a school, actual graduates, um, that's a great place to be. So go check those out. They'll talk to you uh, via blog more than uh, more than we possibly could here. So sdi.edu, click on news, click on grad features, uh, go check that out. It's good stuff. All right, guys, for now, that is the gun wreck. Have fun out there. Stay safe. Don't do what that guy did in St. Louis, presumably St. Louis.
and we will see you at the ranch. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.